Our sermon text this morning is from the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. These are the words of God. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found an help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift of marriage. We thank you for giving us this institution, this covenant, to be a picture of Christ's love for the church. Make our marriages to be a beautiful testimony to what your love for us looks like. We ask this in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. Well, this morning we begin a new uh, sermon series on the Christian family. The Christian family. And we'll spend, uh, I believe, about eight weeks uh, looking at what the Bible has to say about what a Christian family looks like. We'll start this morning with marriage and we'll go all the way through uh, grandparents. So that's, that's the plan. Uh, the title of the sermon this morning is, What is Marriage For? What is Marriage For? Why do people get married? If you were to survey America on this question, which has been done, uh, the dominant reasons that Americans give for getting married are uh, these in order. Love, lifelong commitment, companionship, children, and financial benefits. Love, commitment, companionship, children, and financial benefits. Those are at least the primary reasons why Americans get married. Uh, Does that surprise you at all? Are there any reasons that you you think uh, uh, we're surprised that we're not included on that list? We're all, we all think, okay, that, that's pretty standard. Okay. Um, I, was a, I was a little surprised. Uh, if we were to compare these reasons with the reasons the Bible gives, I think we would see that we are not uh, terribly far from the kingdom, I think Jesus would say. Um, but our priorities as Americans are a bit out of order. Uh, people marry for love. People marry for lifelong commitment. But why in the Bible uh, should people get married? How does the Bible answer this question, what is marriage for? There are two um, historic documents I want to draw from that helpfully uh, summarize the whole Bible's teaching on this subject, and I want to read you uh, both of them. So uh, the first is from the Westminster Confession of Faith, and this was written in uh, the middle of the 17th century, around 1647, and it says this, it says, Marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife, for the increase of mankind with legitimate issue and of the church with an holy seed and for preventing of uncleanness. 
So let me kind of uh, translate that to modern English. Uh, marriage was ordained for three reasons. Mutual help of husband and wife, the bearing and raising of legitimate offspring, legitimate children, and specifically godly children. And then third, uh, the prevention of sexual sin, fornication. We see, we see something similar in the Book of Common Prayer, uh, written in uh, 1559, at least the version I'm citing here. Uh, and this contains, you know, if you've ever watched a Jane Austen movie or um, if you have watched anything British, I suppose, you'll probably hear these words, or maybe you've been to a wedding where you've heard these words, Dearly beloved, we are gathered here together in the sight of God and in the face of his congregation to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony, etc., etc. And if you continue on in that little uh, wedding ceremony uh, service, it'll actually say the three causes for which marriage was ordained. So I'll read you from the Book of Common Prayer. It says, uh, one, <clears throat> one was the procreation of children to be brought up in the fear and nurture of the Lord and praise of God. Secondly, it was ordained for a remedy against sin and to avoid fornication, that such persons as have not the gift of continence might marry and keep themselves undefiled members of Christ's body. Thirdly, for the mutual society, help, and comfort that the one ought to have of the other, both in prosperity and in adversity, into the which holy state these two persons present come now to be joined. So, again... Uh, to summarize in kind of modern English, marriage was ordained for three reasons. The order the Book of Common Prayer gives is, number one, procreation, the raising of godly children. Two, the prevention of sexual sin. And then three, mutual society, help and comfort in all circumstances. Now, uh, you might have noticed that the ordering of these two historic documents is a little different, but the substance is the same. The three reasons why God ordained marriage are for children, for help, and for protection from sexual sin. Or if you would like a mnemonic to kind of help you remember this, we could do three C's. Uh, marriage was ordained for children, companionship, and chastity. Children, companionship, chastity. That is what the best of the Christian tradition has historically taught. So now I want to turn to uh, prove this, demonstrate this uh, from the Bible. And we're going to start by going to Genesis 2, where the first marriage takes place. So uh, Genesis 1 and 2, this is the creation of, of everything. And the events of Genesis 2, 18 to 25, take place on what day of the week? Does anyone know? The sixth day. Very good. So uh, Genesis 2, 18 to 25 are kind of going back now. So we get the, the seven days of creation in Genesis 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. And then Genesis, the rest of Genesis 2 is going to kind of go back and zoom in on what happens on the sixth day of creation. Uh, so Genesis 1, we know this because Genesis 1 says, uh, um, God created man and uh, God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And then a few verses later it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So the first five days of creation are good. But after man and woman are married, God says, behold, it is very good. 
Now, as we are trying to understand from Scripture uh, why God gave us marriage, it's important to understand why the first man was given a wife in the first place. And to figure this out, we need to look uh, very closely at Adam's first day on earth. Because for Adam, uh, his birthday is also his wedding day. Yeah, yes, this is true. His birthday is also his wedding day. So if you were to make a timeline of Adam's first day on earth, it would look like this. God forms Adam from the dust of the ground. He breathes life into his nostrils and places him in the garden. And the first task that Adam is given is what? Yeah, tend and keep the garden. We're in uh, Genesis 2.15, if you want to kind of just follow along. Uh, Adam is a kind of priest, and the garden is a kind of temple. You'll see the same language get picked up later in the Bible. Second, he's told that you can eat from any tree. He can eat from the tree of life. The only tree he can't eat from is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And then he goes about uh, what had to be a really fun task of naming the animals. So he names uh, the cattle. He names the birds. He names the beasts. And uh, children, I have a question for you. This is your chocolate question this morning. I, I finally came up with one for you. So here's the riddle. If Adam, in Genesis, is only said to have named the land animals and birds, who named the sea creatures? Who named the sea creatures? Who named Leviathan? Uh, I have ideas about the answer. I don't, I, there is not a one correct answer. I just want to hear what you have to say. So if you tell me who named the sea creatures, that will be uh, uh, what allows you to get through the fiery sword and to the Hershey's kisses after service. Okay. <laughs> So, and if any adults have some good answers, I'd love to hear them as well. Uh, so a- after naming the animals and not finding a helper suitable to him, God puts Adam into a deep sleep. He kills him. God takes one of Adam's ribs and then he forms the woman. And then God brings that woman to the man. And then Adam names her. So he's just named all of the animals. And then he names the woman. And in Hebrew, he names her Isha. Isha. And in Hebrew, uh, fire is this word esh. And Isha is kind of this play on this, this word for fire. So the woman is, is glorious. The woman is, uh, you know, a crude translation could be like, this is fire girl. This is who she is. And uh, in doing this, in naming his wife Isha, Adam also gets a new name himself, which is Ish. So uh, before, Adam, uh, Adam in Hebrew, is from the Adama. So in Hebrew, the ground is called Adama, and it's a feminine word, and Adam comes from the ground, God breathes life into him, and then he's Adam. So all through Genesis, he's Adam, Adam, Adam. But then when you come to his marriage, suddenly he goes from Adam to now he's an Ish. So he's, he's a husband. This is kind of one of the ways that you could, you could take it. So uh, Adam is changed by marriage. He actually takes on a new name. He goes from Adam, from the guy from the ground, to, you know, husband of fire girl, essentially. One of the things uh, you'll notice in the Bible, uh, this is really important. If you can just really study Genesis 1 to 3, it will help you understand the rest of the book. And one of the things you'll notice is that in the Bible, God likes to give people new names. 
And the, t- the point at which someone gets a new name is usually around some kind of death and resurrection experience. So for example, uh, it isn't actually Adam and Eve. Her, her name is not Eve until after she gives birth. Right? Birth, of course, is a form of death and resurrection. Uh, death and then new life comes and then Adam names her Eve at that point. So she becomes a mother. The, uh, Eve means mother of the living. You see this on through the book of Genesis. Abraham bec- uh, Abram becomes Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. And Jacob becomes Israel. When God promises and puts us through some kind of death and resurrection, we get a new name. For Abraham, that death and resurrection was circumcision. After circumcision, he becomes Abraham. For Sarah, it was giving birth to Isaac. For Jacob, he becomes Israel after he wrestles with God and prevails. So this receiving of a new name is true for all the saints. And throughout your life, anytime you go through what we might call you know, a, a midlife crisis or just a crisis in general, this is a time in which God is taking you from one degree of glory to another. And if you continue to trust him, if you continue to walk by faith, you will be given a new name. Uh, this is what it says in Revelation 2.17. Jesus says, To him who overcomes, I will give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. When you are baptized into Christ, when you die to the world, Jesus gives you a new name. And one day you will be given a stone that tells you what that new name is. So the point here in Genesis 2 is that marriage is a kind of death and resurrection. It's something that transforms you and makes you new. And so the lesson uh, for all of us, for all of us who want to, uh, if you want to get married, it's that you're going to have to die. If you're a man, you're going to have to die. You're going to have to die to your old life, your old life as a bachelor. You need to pull down, you know, all those uh, ridiculous things that are on your wall if you want to get a wife. You're going going to have to die to your old life to be joined to your spouse and made into someone new. So this is what God does with the first man. And remember, we're in a world without sin. We're in a world without sin, and God kills Adam. He puts him to sleep. He cuts him open, and he takes something from him. This is the language of violence, right? But why does God do this to Adam? He does does this in order to give him that rib back to him, utterly transformed. Would you rather have all of your ribs, or would you rather have a wife? This is what God does for him. And so Adam says, she is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. So marriage transforms you. Marriage changes you. Marriage redefines who you are. If we continue in our timeline of Adam's first day, he gets married. And then God tells both him and his wife together what we call the dominion mandate. So this is... Uh, You can imagine at the wedding, uh, a good wedding, the pastor will give kind of a charge to the couple as they, you know, maybe process down the aisle. They kiss and and give some kind of blessing. And this is essentially what God is doing for this couple. And the command, the first task he gives them is be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That is the first command given to the first married couple. And it is a task that still applies to us today. 
Now, Adam was given a task before marriage. Remember, he was to dress and keep the garden. But once he is married, husband and wife jointly are commanded to do something that they can only do together. Right? Adam can tend and keep the garden by himself. Okay? He, he can do that. But he cannot be fruitful and multiply by himself. That's something that both man and woman need one another for. So woman is man's helpmeet specifically in this task of dominion. Now, um, according to Genesis 1 and 2, if we were to kind of stop there, what would you say is the first and highest purpose of marriage? If you had to pick one, you know, is it love? Is it lifelong commitment? Is it children, companionship, chastity? What is the first and highest purpose of marriage? Well, from the perspective of Adam the bachelor, I think we could say that uh, the highest purpose of marriage is help. God says, it's not good for man to be alone, therefore I will make him a helper suitable to him, namely woman. And so when the Westminster Confession puts mutual help as the first in the order of why God ordained marriage, this is probably their logic. God gave Adam a wife because he needed help. It was not good for him to be alone. So help or companionship is definitely up there as one of the chief purposes for marriage. However, at the same time, we could also look at marriage from the perspective of both man and woman as they are married, as they walk down the aisle and out into the world. What does God tell them to do? Well, the first command is procreate, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. There's a whole world out there beyond the garden and God wants them to fill it with other image bearers, to transform creation from glory to glory. So this is probably what the Book of Common Prayer has in mind by placing children first in the order of reasons for marriage. So um, I'll leave you to decide which you think is is the highest. You can see um, both uh, cases could be made for both of them. And it's not really a huge deal which one you put first. But I hope you can see that both children and companionship or help are at the very top for why God gave us marriage. We might call these the twin purposes for marriage as God intended. Now, we have to remember this is all taking place so far in a world without sin. We're talking about marriage in its original, natural, God-ordained form. There's one man, one woman, for life, together, helping one another, raising children to subdue the earth. You can think, if the fall never happened... Uh, I wouldn't have to preach this sermon, but also uh, we could just stop there uh, in answering the question, what is marriage for? It's just for children and companionship, right? Genesis 1 to 2, boom, we could stop there. But of course, the story goes on. The fall does happen, and Adam's sin brings death into this world. And so now every human being downstream from him is born dead born broken, born in sin, and alienated from the life of God. And thus we find in Scripture that there is a third purpose for marriage that is unique to life in a fallen world. And that is assistance in chastity or continence. In other words, uh, this is coping with your sex drive. Sinful human nature manifests itself in many ugly ways. And one of them is in man's struggle to subdue his passions, 
to rule his sense appetites by the higher faculties of his reason, intellect, and will. Both men and women desire the good that is sexual pleasure and fruitfulness, but after the fall, we want it in disordered and unlawful ways. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, he's giving instructions to uh, those who are unmarried, and he says, If they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. Uh, And I take burn there to refer to the burning of, of the passions. So, after the fall, marriage takes on this additional purpose, that man and woman will have a lawful place for sexual release that will prevent them from uncleanness, prevents them from fornication and sin and STDs. At the same time, it encourages chastity. It reinforces the covenant bond. So the covenant of marriage is meant to create this fence of sexual protection and delight for both husband and wife. Okay, so those are the three reasons. Those are the three reasons why God gave us marriage. They are children, companionship, and chastity. But we need to add some more qualifications because Sin has affected everything. It has affected the raising of children and that mutual help part. So uh, let us consider how sin has affected our marriages. In Genesis 3, God curses the ground. And this makes man's work difficult and toilsome. And for the woman, he increases her sorrow and pain in childbearing. Uh, Genesis 3.16 says... Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. So we see here two consequences for sinning against God as it relates to marriage. Number one, now having and raising children is going to become super hard. Remember, uh, Adam and Eve, their first son, kills their other son, Cain is going to kill Abel. Second, loving and respecting one another in marriage is also going to become super hard because now both of you have a selfish sin nature inside of you. For the woman, she desires her husband in such a way that she does not get what she wants. And so at times she will try to usurp his authority. And the man will at times abuse that authority and rule that he has and oppress his wife. So sin now threatens this one flesh union. Sin is that selfish principle in all of us that seeks to rip covenants apart. So now all three purposes for marriage are marred by sin. Having children is hard. Helping one another is hard. Remaining chaste and faithful is hard. And yet as hard as marriage can be, God says marriage is still good. And a good marriage is perhaps the greatest of all earthly blessings after the fall. After the fall, God did not separate Adam and Eve. He did not say, you guys need to get a divorce now that you're both sinners. Sin did not destroy their marriage covenant. They still had the same exact task assigned to them by God. It was just going to be a lot more difficult to do. We know this because the dominion mandate is given again. It's given to Noah's family after the flood. God says, uh, it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Right? That's God's command and sin 
Sin is going to make it harder, but that's still um, the command for mankind. We see this on down through the New Testament era. We read in Hebrews 13.4, it says, Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. So the Bible is saying here that marriages, even between unbelievers, that is an honorable institution. It is what we call a natural good, and as an honorable institution, it retains these three purposes, children, companionship, and chastity. That is what marriage is for if you are an unbeliever. That's what marriage is for if you are a believer. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time just applying these first uh, two purposes to us in a distinctly Christian way. So how does uh, kind of children and companionship, what do those two purposes look like in a distinctly Christian marriage? Remember that uh, both the Westminster Confession and the Book of Common Prayer say that children or procreation is a purpose for marriage. But then they add this qualification. The Westminster Confession says, for the increase of mankind with legitimate issue and of the church with an holy seed. And the Book of Common Prayer says, the procreation of children to be brought up in the fear and nurture of the Lord and praise of God. Uh, In other words, it is not sufficient to just have children. The command we have from God is to raise godly children, Christian children, children who keep covenant with God all their days. That is the true and highest purpose of marriage. And this is not easy to do. Just about every patriarch in the Old Testament failed on this account. Malachi 2 is an oracle against the Jews who were breaking their marriage vows. And this is what God says to them. It says, The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. That's Malachi 2, 14 to 15. So notice what God brings up when he confronts unfaithful husbands. Of course, they're hurting their wife, but he tells them that the problems in their marriages are creating ungodly children, which is what God desires from our marriages. What does he want? What is the one God seeking? Godly offspring. It does no good to fill the world with little canes. That is not obedience to the command to be fruitful and multiply when one son ends up killing the other. And in the church today, there are many crooked arrows in the quivers of Christian households. And this should not be so. Children know when their parents are out of fellowship. Children can smell and sense hypocrisy in a home. And when there is a lack of love and a lack of respect in marriage, it creates an atmosphere of anxiety, of fear, of resentment and bitterness in a child's heart. Ungodly marriages undermine the faith of children. And what does Jesus say about those who make children to stumble? He says, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Matthew 18, 6. It is a grave sin 
one of the gravest sins, to stumble your children. And the greatest responsibility we have as parents is to bring up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so if you want to raise godly children, the number one thing you can do for them is love your wife and honor your husband. Show your children how to be godly, how to confess their sins, how to pray and repent and trust in Christ. Otherwise, you are just teaching them hypocrisy. You are just raising little pagans for the enemy rather than covenant children for the Lord. In future sermons, we'll look uh, in greater detail at the duties of husbands and wives. But for now, we should just simply be reminded that if the God-given purpose of marriage is the raising of godly offspring, if that is God's highest purpose, then that has to become a high priority for us. Failure here is a marriage failure, and God wants us to succeed. More on that in uh, future weeks. Second, uh, we see how husband and wife are to help one another. The Westminster Confession calls this the mutual help of husband and wife. Uh, The Book of Common Prayer calls it the mutual society help and comfort that the one ought to have of the other, both in prosperity and adversity. This is the uh, for richer or poorer in sickness and in health part of the marriage vow. And uh, it takes about five minutes to forget what your marriage vows were, right? Remember, you, you said those things, it was all kind of a blur, and then you're off on the honeymoon and then life together. And it's very easy to, to forget, oh yeah, I made a promise. What, what exactly did we vow to do in front of the eyes of God and all of those witnesses? Right? This is something worth doing, you know, perhaps on your anniversary or something. Go, go back and remember what uh, you promised to do in Uh, your marriage vow. We promise to help one another, to endure trials together no matter what. Paul says in Ephesians 5 that when a man loves his wife, he is loving himself because the two are one flesh. Ephesians 5.28 says, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. So how much should a man love his wife? As much as he loves himself. How much does Christ love the church? Enough to die for her. This is the essence of being a man, of being a husband. To love unto death. To sacrifice our selfish desires for the desires that God has for the both of us, to make our wife holy and our children holy and without blemish. So the pattern for Christian husbands and Christian wives, and we'll be returning to this again and again, is the pattern of Christ and the church. This is what Paul calls the great mystery of marriage. The husband is head as Christ is head of the body. That is where we learn how to rule. The wife is subject. She is to submit, even as even as the church is subject to Christ. She is to abound and adorn herself with love and good works. And when husbands and wives embrace these roles and responsibilities that God has assigned to them, we find in one another a true companion, a true friend, a true helpmeet that is suitable to us. It was not good for Adam to be alone. The dominion that God calls us to cannot be accomplished without marriage. 
And how much more in this world of sin and sickness and trouble and death? We need one another. We need marriage. And when we obey God and keep our marriage vows, we are telling the world what Christ's love for the church looks like. And this is perhaps what we might call the fourth and final purpose for marriage, to preach the gospel. Few men are called to be preachers of the word. Not many should be teachers. But all who are married are called to preach with their lives and actions what the gospel is. Wives submitting to their husbands as unto the Lord. Husbands loving their wives like Christ loved the church. Marriage is a portrait of the gospel, and so we must not be heretics in our marriages. We must not lie about Christ's love and faithfulness and the church's submission by doing the opposite in our marriages. A husband who does not love and cherish his wife is lying about God. And a wife who does not honor and submit to her husband and the Lord is lying about the Lord of the church. We must not be heretics in our marriages. Marriage is hard, but marriage is good. And marriage is meant to tell the world the greatest love story that there ever was. And so how are you doing? Are you telling that story truly as a husband and as a wife? If not, if you're not doing well there, then turn to Christ. Learn from him. He is your beloved and you belong to him. You are a member of his body. You are his bride. And he delights to wash you clean. He delights to give you a new name. He desires to resurrect dead marriages that have grown cold and bitter and sexless. Christ is the one who is making all things new. And that can be true of your marriage. I'll close with this. What is marriage for? It's for godly children, it's for true companionship, and it is for chastity. And when we order our marriages towards these God-given ends, we tell the world what God is like, that God is love, that God is faithful. He does not break his covenant. And in Christ, God has become one with us. This is the union that marriage testifies to. And so may God help us to proclaim this truth. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, you know the state of our households. You know the state of our children. You know the state of our hearts and our marriages, where uh, our hearts have wandered, or love has grown cold, where there is bitterness and resentment. God, I ask that you would give us your spirit, a spirit not merely of conviction, but a spirit and will to change, to make things right to order our lives, to take responsibility where uh, we have let things fall. And we ask that you would do that miracle of resurrection for us, that you would give us fruitful marriages, children who delight to know you and love you. Help us to raise godly offspring for you. In Jesus' name, amen.